Section 24 of Seven Roman Statesmen of the Later Republic by Charles Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8 Pompey, Part 4. Those who with Mumpson attribute to Pompey nothing but the meanest impulses call personal jealousy alone the cause of his breach with Caesar and that feeling was undoubtedly a powerful element among the mixed motives which swayed his mind but there was something more there was the honest political conviction that rome did not want a despot he himself whose opportunities in the past had been so great had not chosen to be king why should another be allowed to snatch at the crown the literary partisans of caesar justify their hero by replying that he turned out to be a heaven-sent saviour of society but even granting that this is true how could any roman of b c fifty one have known it caesar was naturally judged by his dubious past not by the glorious present in gaul his future no man could have foreseen it is clear then that the steady growth of caesar's fame wealth and political influence gradually frightened pompey into precautionary measures which could not be justified according to the strict letter of roman constitutional law after his consulship of b c fifty five had expired he ought to have raised the legions which had been granted to him and to have gone off to take up his province of spain just as crassus had departed to take up his province of syria instead of doing so pompey lingered behind in rome and only sent his legates afranius and petraeus to spain moreover after mustering his legions he dispatched some to his province but dismissed others on furlough so that though disembodied they could be called out when he needed them this practically amounted to keeping an army in italy a most unconstitutional step it gave pompey the power of overawing the senate but had obvious military disadvantages for troops left long on furlough lose their efficiency and esprit de corps that he did not really aim at absolute power is sufficiently shown by the fact that he never employed his army against the state but what could be a worse precedent than to keep it in italy after committing such a breach of constitutional usage as retaining his spanish proconsulship and his legions while he still remained at home pompey could not plausibly complain of any acts of doubtful legality on caesar's part it is curious to find that even while pompey and his legions were looking on rome remained as turbulent as ever the years b c fifty four to fifty three were the most anarchic time that had been seen since catiline's day and the perpetual riots and affrays stirred up by clodius and his rival milo made the city almost uninhabitable the very consular elections could not be held in fifty four so that in the early months of b c fifty three the state had no existing supreme magistrate it was not till the middle of the year that domitius calvinus and valerius massala were elected and installed things only grew worse in the autumn again the consular comitia was broken up by violence without any new magistrate having been elected at the moment when milo murdered clodius 
on january eighteenth b c fifty two rome was again destitute of consuls and there was no one whose office it was to repress the fearful riots that followed when the senate house was burnt and the streets were for some days in the possession of an armed mob which only failed to carry out a revolution because it lacked able leaders such phenomena hardly justified pompey's policy of remaining in italy while he pretended to be the first man in the state and had military force at his back it was absurd that anarchy should be allowed to prevail in the city it is true that when the senate at last made a definite appeal to him to act and allowed him to be given the strange office of sole consul pompey promptly restored order he mobilized many of his cohorts brought them within the city stopped the rioting and caused both milo the slayer of clodius on the one side and plancus and rufus the leaders of the democratic mob on the other to be tried and sent into exile but if he was able to do this with such ease in the spring of b c fifty two it is clear that he might have stopped the anarchy eighteen months before a statesman who let matters drift so long before he intervened was not fitted to deal with the hopeless constitutional problems of the degenerate republic but his honesty at least was made more evident than ever when after the suppression of the urban disorders he took a colleague in the consulship dismissed his troops and finally dropped back into his old position by this time it was practically certain that the open breach between the two surviving triumvirs could not be long delayed julia the strongest bond between them for both loved her well had died in b c fifty four the last act of undoubted friendship that ever linked them the loan of a legion by pompey to caesar to repair the loss of the cohorts which perished with sabinus and cotta took place in fifty three after fifty two the war might have broken out at any moment but pompey jealous and suspicious as he felt shrank from striking the first blow while caesar's hands were completely tied by the great revolt in gaul under vercingetorix which was not wholly suppressed till the autumn of b c fifty one by that time pompey's attitude could not be mistaken he had given his aid to the optimates for the renewal of the celebrated law which declared that all candidates for office must come to rome and sue in person a direct challenge to his colleague who had let it be known that he intended to stand for the consulship of b c forty eight but did not intend to leave gaul till he had been safely elected such a move seemed to show that the long-delayed rupture between the two great men was at last about to take place caesar was determined to see exactly how matters stood and wrote to demand an explanation but when he made formal complaints to pompey as to his hostile action the latter with inexplicable feebleness allowed a clause to be added to the law which exempted caesar by name from its operation but as this supplement was never even submitted to the comitia it was of more than doubtful legality either pompey was trying to pacify his ally by a concession which could be afterwards denounced as invalid or he was strangely ignorant of legislative technicalities his personal character and reputation for honesty tell against the former supposition we can but hope 
that jealousy and suspicion had not degraded him into unworthy double-dealing but the general effect of the incident is dubious into the miserable wrangle over the constitutional technicalities which filled the year b c fifty we need not inquire in detail the legal pettifogging on both sides could not conceal the main facts caesar was resolved to have the consulship for b c forty eight and to rule as supreme magistrate at rome for that year and probably for many a year to follow on the other hand cato and his friends were honestly convinced that the installation of caesar as consul would mean the establishment of monarchy of a monarchy half military half democratic which would probably be inaugurated with a proscription and a general confiscation of the property of the monarch's political opponents what else could be expected from a tyrant who had conspired with catiline and who had employed and encouraged clodius pompey may not have thought so badly of his late father-in-law but he was as fully convinced as the optimates themselves that caesar aimed at supreme power and while he lived he did not intend to suffer a master to be placed over his head he had not refused half a dozen times to make himself tyrant of rome in order that another man should be given the chance and should accept it the struggle was inevitable and it was to no purpose that the weaker men in the senate who failed to grasp the meaning of the situation continued to cry for peace and to pass idle votes calling on both caesar and pompey to lay down their official positions and disband their armies caesar would not disarm unless pompey did the same pompey refused to do so because he was fully convinced that if he had not an army at his back when caesar came home from gaul he would find himself helpless he had at last realized the fact that he was utterly unable to control domestic politics while caesar was an adept at managing a mob or raising a riot if neither side were armed it was certain that his rival would sweep the streets and get control of the comitia even while absent in his province caesar had been able to intervene with effect whenever he chose and he had now enlisted as his political lieutenants all the promising young demagogues of rome all that gang of which antony curio caelius and dolabella were the most prominent members they were not a very reputable set of followers but there was not one of them who could not have given pompey lessons in the art of mob management so pompey with the full approval of cato and the optimates refused either to depart to spain or to lay down his province and to disband his legions this being so caesar could do no more than search for the best technical casus belli on which to cross the rubicon and march on rome his adversaries were obliging enough to provide him with a very fair plea of the kind that he wanted by mishandling and expelling his satellites the tribunes antony and cassius it was with the fine old democratic cry that the tribunicial authority the palladium of the constitution must at all costs be protected that caesar launched his legions into central italy much earlier than his enemies had expected him to take the decisive step the winter campaign of b c forty nine is one of the best examples in history of the all-importance of time in war 
pompey's military merits were many but rapidity was not one of them he was a good organizer a sure and steady leader a capable strategist but he was not one of those generals who fly from point to point with lightning speed and win by swift marching as much as by hard fighting caesar's sudden move across the rubicon had caught him with his army still unmobilized to those who had questioned him about his preparations he had replied that he had but to stamp his foot in any part of italy and legions would at once spring up the boast was not unfounded for his name had still the greatest influence with the military classes and if he had been allowed a few weeks of preparation he would have taken the field at the head of an imposing force but caesar knew the fact and was determined that those few weeks should not be granted him it was this knowledge that made him strike so early and advance into picanum with a mere vanguard while the main body of his legions was still trailing through the alpine passes this sudden eruption disarranged all pompey's plans instead of being able to mobilize at leisure and to face the invader on the frontier he was forced to abandon rome in the first days of the war and to order his recruits to collect far to the south in apulia he had no force actually under arms and capable of taking the field save two legions at capua which could not lightly be trusted for they had been under caesar's orders till the preceding year and had been borrowed from him for the ostensible purpose of being sent to the parthian war if pompey risked opposing them to their old leader it is possible or even probable that they would desert to him en masse they were not given the chance but they were marched off at once to the south and out of harm's way the levies of northern italy were never raised by the republicans caesar had been too quick for them but those of the central regions ought to have been led in safety to the camp at luceria the great centre of mobilization if pompey's orders had been properly carried out if they had arrived it might yet have been possible to maintain a hold on southern italy but the plan of campaign was ruined by the strange mixture of presumption and cowardice displayed by lucius domitius ahenobarbus one of the many officers of tried optimate principles and equally tried incapacity whom pompey had been forced to put in high command with twenty thousand newly embodied men not wholly armed nor even told off into legions domitius ventured to oppose himself to caesar in spite of orders that bade him march for luceria without risking the smallest skirmish he was promptly surrounded driven into corfinium and blockaded seven days later the undisciplined horde of conscripts surrendered to caesar when they saw that there was no relief at hand and that their general was preparing to abscond by night and to leave them in the lurch deprived of half the army which he had hoped to concentrate at luceria and left alone with two untrustworthy legions and the not over-numerous levies of apulia and lucania pompey dared not fight in spite of the complaints and criticisms of his optimate allies even cicero dared to taunt him with want of military skill he resolved to evacuate italy and retire to epirus where under cover of his fleet he might drill and organize his recruits in safety the whole army was shipped off from brundisium in spite of caesar's efforts to prevent its retreat when pressed by his opponent 
pompey showed that his old reputation was not undeserved by foiling the attack of the gallic legions and bringing off his whole force without any appreciable loss it was now only the seventeenth of march and the whole campaigning season lay at the disposal of the two adversaries but pompey could not use it for active operations he had to form his masses of conscripts into a fighting machine and to wait for the distant reinforcements that could be raised in the east there were two old legions in syria the rex of crassus his host and one other in cilicia more could undoubtedly be raised among the numerous roman citizens residing in greece and asia but it would take months to bring these distant resources into working order meanwhile pompey could do nothing but order his fleet to blockade italy and to prevent the caesareans from taking ship to follow him across the ionian sea caesar on the other hand was in a very different position his old army was entirely at his disposition and he had already raised many new legions from italy secure against any interruption from pompey for many months he could strike at the one region where the republican party was really strong spain in that province lay seven old legions devoted to pompey if not to the senate they were in charge of afranius and petraeus two commonplace veterans willing and courageous enough but destitute of any spark of military genius caesar resolved to destroy this dangerous force in his rear before paying any further attention to pompey's disorganized host i march he said to deal with the army that has no general i shall then come back to deal with the general who has no army he carried out his project in a campaign of three short months he defeated surrounded and captured five of the pompeian legions at alerda the other two surrendered a few weeks later long ere the army of epirus was ready to move caesar was back again in italy and planning out his second task the destruction of pompey's main body when pompey and caesar were once face to face we note that the younger general found that his task was far harder than he had supposed it was the best contested campaign that he ever conducted hazardous it was bound to be since the republicans were in very superior force but caesar endeavoured to reduce the hazard to a minimum and in especial made his troops entrench and stockade themselves in the most laborious fashion he could have paid no greater compliment to his adversary's generalship for he knew that man for man his soldiers were each worth two of pompey's recruits pompey on the other hand was bound to show an even greater caution if once his active and vigilant enemy could force a battle upon him on anything like equal ground the result in spite of their relative numbers would be more than doubtful it was his object to contain and check caesar rather than to endeavour to destroy him his strategy had to be defensive and for ultimate success he relied on his power to starve out his adversary by confining him to a narrow strip of barren coastline and cutting off his supplies that came by sea in all of this he was successful caesar's attempts to bring on a battle were foiled the war stood still for four months in the long lines which both parties had constructed outside Dorachium. this delay was all in pompey's favour for he had far more reinforcements to expect and resources to draw upon than his opponent 
when caesar tried the desperate game of trying to cast a complete circumvallation around the republican camp he was utterly foiled waiting till the line some twenty miles long grew over thin pompey burst out one morning broke through the entrenchments drove off the legions opposed to him and inflicted on the caesarians a loss which their leader himself confesses to have amounted to over one thousand men the prospects of the great adventurer looked dark his food was giving out his ranks were growing thin even his hardy veterans were somewhat dashed in spirits by their first defeat the prolongation of the present situation was impossible and caesar tried his last move it was skilful and daring but hazardous in the extreme abandoning his lines he marched off southward and then struck inland up the valley of the aus across the Epirot mountains as if he were meditating a blow at his opponent's base at thessalonica pompey would probably have done well to have let caesar march whither he pleased and to have thrown his whole army on to italy his fleet could have taken him over in a few days and the peninsula was practically undefended there was nothing but a legion or two of recruits to defend the caesarian cause and the countryside would probably have received the return of pompey with enthusiasm but pompey preferred to consider caesar and his army not rome as his objective and marched off inland in the pursuit of the enemy he came up with them at pharsalus and there at last risked battle there was much to encourage him his legions were improving in value every day during the last combats round Dyrrhachium they had behaved admirably he had nearly double his adversary's numbers including a force of cavalry to which caesar had hardly anything to oppose his officers were set on fighting the optimates thought that they had their enemy in a trap and were only anxious to make an end of him their constant appeals which grew into taunts and angry recriminations finally drove their commander into risking the general engagement which he had so long avoided he was as it turned out misled when he yielded to the murmurs of his officers and the prayers of his legionaries the great battle in the plain of pharsalus turned out a complete disaster not from any want of tactical skill in pompey but mainly from the inferior quality of his men he had determined to win by a desperate cavalry assault upon the enemy's flank it failed simply because the horsemen mainly asiatic auxiliaries did not press the charge home and allowed themselves to be beaten back by the band of indomitable veterans whom caesar had told off as his flank guard the cavalry rode off the field and the flank of the pompeian legions who had so far held their ground with commendable steadiness was left exposed to the enemy caesar used his reserve to strike in upon the undefended point and suddenly the hitherto unbroken line of the republican infantry crumpled up and the whole force rolled back in confusion into their camp and then after a short attempt to defend the vallum retreated in utter disorder into the hills the day was lost the army scattered to the winds and pompey broken-hearted at the sudden and disastrous end of his hitherto successful campaign rode off the field not following the main mass of the fugitives but seeking the sea when he saw that he was not pursued he went softly on wrapped up in such thoughts as we may suppose a man to have 
who had been used for thirty-four years to conquer and to carry all before him and now on the verge of old age first came to know what it was to be a vanquished fugitive in one short hour he had lost the glory and power which had grown up among so many wars and conflicts and he who was lately guarded with so many armies and fleets rode on with such a scanty train that the enemies who were in search of him passed over the little party without noticing them footnote plutarch End footnote. at the mount of the peneus pompey was taken up by a casual trading vessel putting into mytilene he packed up his wife and some other roman refugees he collected a few ships in the asiatic waters and when his depression had passed away began to think once more of reorganizing resistance in the east for that purpose he sailed for the nile where he wished to prevail on the egyptian government to lend him the considerable mercenary army largely composed of italians of which it could dispose the boy king the son of ptolemy Aulades, was only ten years old and the control of the state was in the hands of a camarilla of obscure courtiers the eunuch patinus the rhetorician theodotus of chios and the condottiere achilas the miserable levantines were scared at the news of pompey's approach they did not for a moment think of lending him assistance but at first they had no further purpose than that of getting rid as quickly as possible of their unwelcome guest but a thought struck the rhetorician if we receive pompey he said we make caesar our enemy if we reject pompey we earn his undying hatred and it is quite possible that he and his cause may yet triumph in the end but if we lure him ashore and kill him we do caesar a favour and have nothing to fear from pompey for he added with a smile dead men do not bite the argument seemed unanswerable to the egyptian privy council and the plan was carried out with complete success the great general was invited to land and promised an audience with the young king achilas rode out to his galley taking with him septimius and salvius two centurions who had once served under pompey in the east but were now holding a high rank in the egyptian army reassured by the sight of these roman faces and by the smooth words of achilas pompey descended into their barge and was rowed ashore just as he stepped on to the beach the three traitors drew their swords and stabbed him from behind he fell dead almost before he realized that he had been betrayed and without uttering a single word so ended an honest man and an able general the victim partly of his own unwise persistence in trying to pose as a great statesman partly of the incurable rottenness of decadent rome he should have been born two hundred years before when the ancient roman virtues still met their reward and when it was possible to be the first soldier of the republic without being also required to become an autocrat or a saviour of society military greatness he had won with his sword political importance was thrust upon him by the inevitable tendency of the times he yielded unhappily for himself to the temptation of playing a part in politics of overturning constitutions and dictating laws tyrant of rome he never wished to be yet he was led into doing many things tyrannical all his life shows that he aspired to nothing more than the place of first citizen in the republic yet he helped to make the republic impossible 
by setting precedents and examples of fatal encroachment on the free constitution the gabinian and manilian laws and the sole consulship of b c fifty two were landmarks in the history of the growth of the imperial idea pompey neither reigned nor wished to reign himself but he did much to make monarchy possible for his rival and successor End of section twenty four